mention uh, at the announcement time that if you didn't grab uh, the communion elements, uh, they're back there on the table, and so please feel free to stand up and walk over and, and, and pick them up so that we can uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our time together. Uh, what we are doing uh, today is, is uh, grace and truth discussion, church leadership, and decision-making is the topic of the day. But what we're going to do is kind of broken down into three sections. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about why we have these grace and truth discussions. I'm going to talk a little bit about our assessment and reminding us of some of what's going on, why we're in this particular series we're in. And then we're going to lead up to the end of the service where we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so in light of all the stuff I'm going to talk about, and I have a lot of stuff to talk about, I'm fearful that the, our, what we have in Christ might be overshadowed. When you have that song that we just sang, and I'm so thankful that God works in the lives of believers to uh, construct uh, words and, and music together to, uh, to just remind us of what we have in Christ. Let me just start off by encouraging this morning that if you are in Christ, you have every reason to rejoice. If you are not in Christ, then we're going to use terminology that you're probably not comfortable with if you're not a regular church attender. And, and, and listen, we do not, we are not trying to alienate anybody. We actually, our, our mission in, in this world is to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And that, what that means is, is if you don't know anything about Jesus, we'd like to tell you about Jesus and welcome you into the family and then see you grow in your connection with this family. So um, I hope that's uh, a desire of your heart as you come today that you would be desirous of knowing who Jesus is. Uh, He is God's son. And we can sing his praises and we can talk about the importance of church and we can do all these things because of what God has done uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. So we invite you to come to faith in him. He is the Son of God. He died on that cross that we, uh, we probably, you probably look at it all the time. He died on that cross for your sins and for mine. And, uh, and if you come to faith in what he accomplished on that cross, you too can have eternal life with him. We'd love to talk to you about it. The reason we have this uh, grace and truth discussion is this particular one, church leadership and decision making, is because we conducted an assessment, and, and back in January, it, it's kind of surprised me that it's been that long ago, but these slides are from a January, uh, an assessment update that I gave uh, on January 6th, and so I just want to walk you through this, because we have been very intentional about what we're doing, and, uh, and al- although it's not so-called preaching, I'm going to remind you that what we are doing as a church is very intentional, and is for God's glory. So, uh, when we did, had the assessment done, Dr. Ewart crafted this slide. He said, uh, the primary issues to move forward. In other words, we wanted an outside opinion of how things are going here at MVBC. Uh, he said, to create a stronger understood value of a healthy biblical church and to build on the strong legacy of biblical preaching, teaching, and sound doctrine. He's saying, listen, we have something that's very good here. Let's build upon it. And he identified 10 issues of which we're going to, I just want to touch on three of them today that I think this series that we're going through uh, as we talk about church leadership and and, uh, decision making, as we talk about the nature of the church, I think we're going to hit on three of these. So the first issue is leadership and decision making polity, relationships, structure, alignment, and responsibilities should be reviewed and clarified. 
that is the main reason we are doing what we're doing in this particular uh, sermon time, but also in this whole series, is we're trying to uh, kind of make sure we are all on the same page with our, our leadership and decision-making. We announced back in January that we were going to change this particular grace and truth discussion uh, from Christianity and culture to church polity. So we had already purposed to address uh, difficult issues. Again, you, if you've been here for any time, you know my desire is that we're able to have the hard conversations as brothers and sisters in Christ, do it in a unified fashion, wrestle with things, uh, and then maybe agree to disagree in the end. All right? But, uh, but it's the idea. We ought to at least be able to talk about these things. That's why we have these. So rather than talk about Christianity and culture, we're going to talk about church polity, which is the idea of how a, a local church is governed. All right? So we'll look at that. Uh, preparation for this focus is uh, included a series on the foundation of all we do, the glory of God. And so we have completed that. And then we transition into a subsequent preaching series uh, focusing on Christ's church. And in a sense, this is still part of that. Uh, we, we focused on the church as Christ's church, but then we focused last week into exactly that we're focused on this local church. And then we, uh, then we are saying that this particular, that's why it's a very important, and if you didn't read the, uh, the um, Family Happenings, I encourage you to get that every week and read it. But I, it's, it's essential that you are here on Wednesday night. It may not be your custom to come out on Wednesday night, but what we're trying to do, this, this grace and truth discussion, will be used to prompt questions which will assist in uh, preparation for targeted sermons. So this particular sermon, uh, this, this series, really last week, this week, and next week, are, uh, and, then, and then honestly um, a couple more after that, is the idea we want to target this idea of pastors slash elders, what is it, uh, is what's an eldership model of church polity look like? This is not something I'm bringing to you as this, this is my soapbox. This is what I'm going to, I'm a firm believer in it. Uh, but this was already taking place in this church before I ever got here. And so you may have, dis- you may have questions from that period of time that you don't feel like you had an opportunity to get answered. We're saying we'd like to answer your questions. Come out Wednesday night. We will divide into at least, well, hopefully uh, about six groups, and we are here to listen. We're going to prompt you some, some questions to get you thinking, and then we're asking you to, you know, think about, ask your questions so that we can prepare uh, in, a, in an intentional way how to answer those questions to your satisfaction as we continue to go down this road of discerning uh, what polity uh, glorifies God best. All right. Another issue that's touched on, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's continuing to define church membership expectations, goals, and accountability. We're talking about the congregation today, so certainly some of this is, is implicit in this uh, as, as we talk about it. And then the, the, the third issue, but number four on, uh, out of the ten, is define a proper and transparent communication strategy to support the vision that we are promoting here at Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. So some of the steps we've taken for this is we have started this grace and truth. This is our second one. The first one was on conflict. This is on church leadership and decision-making. But we're also having quarterly update meetings uh, so that you know what's going on and we can keep you uh, appraised of of what's going on within within our church family. If you're part of the family, you ought to know what's going on. All right? And it shouldn't be that you're here and you don't know what's going on. It's, you should be here and, and know everything and as much as we can share. And, and you should ask questions on any day of the week. But certainly 
What we have done is, uh, to this point, we've been focusing on the glory of God. I've already said that. We transitioned to looking at Christ's church. And then last week, we transitioned to Christ's local church. That's us. And, uh, and so this is, this is our desire as brothers and sisters in Christ of a local church, Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. We're, we're seeking to do all that we do to the glory of God. And that means being purposeful in, in all these things. So last week I challenged you with this, uh, this, what I think is a truth, what the church is. This is Big C Church. I'll explain that in a little bit. This Big C Universal Church, a church of all time, uh, of all nations, right? What the church is because it's God's program and God created the church for His purposes. MVBC, as a local church, is called to be. And so we challenge you with that and we're going we're gonna to walk through that a little bit more uh, today. In review... Can I have that, please? My water, please. So, folks, listen, I took a COVID test yesterday. It was neg- negative, but I've never struggled with uh, allergies before. But, oh, baby, I'm, I'm struggling now. And uh, so bear with me. Um, and, I, therefore, I'm trying not to shake hands and all that, just in case, you know, negative. I feel fine other than, than the way I sound and probably the way I look. All right. So... Uh, so we discussed this last week. The church, Big C Church, God's program, the church is one family. It's not multiple families. It's one family. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who have uh, lived hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, that you will get to know in eternity. But that we're still part of this one big family. This family is uh, a—it re- it only— you're only in the family if these things are true of you. One, you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, the good news that Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins so that you don't have to experience the wrath of God because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So be in Christ. Come to faith in who he is and what he's done. But the only way you get to be part of the family is by responding to the gospel. And then, and then another thing that's true of this family is that we rejoice in the variety of people in it. So it's not only people of all time, but of all nations, tribes and tongues. And we can rejoice in the, in, in the fact that when we get to heaven and we're in eternity, we're going to be meeting people you know, from all over the world, not just all the way through time. And then certainly one of the things that's characteristic of this one family is we respect all members. There's never a time where you should ever not respect a member of God's family. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. If, there is, is there, if there's tension in your relationships, if there's, if there's some person that you're just like, they walk in the room and your stomach just goes churn and churn, there's a spiritual problem going on there. You need to work through that with God's help, right? But we need to respect this. And the fact is, this says Big C Church, this is the way the big church is. is. This is the way it is, and, and, and so we'll, we'll keep going. We, we talked about, I'm just going to look at the highlighted text here. This is the text that we uh, anchored this on last week. You are members of the household of God. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesians. He's saying, listen, the middle wall of partition has been destroyed. There's now no separation between Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and barbarians and all these things. He's saying, listen, no, you are members, no matter what your cultural background, what are your, your uh, pedigree you are members of the household of God if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that we have been, uh, well, that'll, that'll be the next slide. So we're a, fa- we're a unified church uh, in the sense that we are justified by one Savior. 
We're empowered by one spirit and we worship one father. We believe in the Trinity. But listen, you're only part of the family if you are justified, empowered, and you're worshiping the right God, right? This is what's true of the church. And we encourage you here, if you've never been justified by Jesus Christ, then you've never experienced the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and your worship is false. Uh, there is many books out there that point out the reality that we all worship. In other words, men, women, and children of all parts of the world, are, we are wired by God to worship. But unless we have been justified by Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross on our behalf, then that is the only thing that enables us to be a unified family in our worship to God the Father. We have to, this all has to be true of you. So if you think you're part of the church because you've been going to a particular denomination or a building for a period of time, this is what constitutes a church. Not just where you park your car and where you spend your, a few hours or, uh, yeah, a few hours on Sunday. All right, we're a faithful family. This is, this is true. This is, this is the essential part of what the church is. The great commission is going forth. The great commandment is being lived out. And we are, uh, we are trying to complete those things that God has prepared for us ahead of time to do. And so the great commission works because if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because Jesus Christ gave the great commission and obedient disciples of Jesus Christ have been, have been promoting it and telling others and telling others and telling others and telling others until the point that you and I heard it and we're here in this building today. And we do it out of love, to love our God, to love our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what the church is. So we're, we're unified. Uh, the church is unified. The church is faithful and, and then we talked about, so I want to just point out this big C, right? Big C church is the model for all little C churches. What do I mean by that? Well, the big C church, as we talk about this text, uh, this is true of all churches of all time. They, uh, everyone who is part of the universal church of all times, of all parts of the world, they, ha- they are fellow citizens. We've already touched on that with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are not just the foundation of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, but of all genuine churches of all time. And we see that Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, not just of this church, but of all churches, legitimate churches. Uh, this, is, this is what Big C Church is all about. It says, in whom, Big C Church, the whole building. This is the whole building from, from uh, Pentecost so the day everything is brought together and the church is consummated, it's the idea, all things are consummated, it's the idea of the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is all what Jesus is doing in the universal church. I use that term, hopefully it doesn't frustrate you, but it's just the easiest way to, to talk about it. Little C church, that's us. Little local church, right? He transitions from the idea of in whom the whole building to the next verse where he says, in whom you also, speaking to the Ephesians, are being built. It's, a, it's an action taking place. He's saying you're being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Big C Church is what God has created it to be. Little C Church, look at, the, look at what God is doing. Get on, uh, get on target with what, what God is doing and make your Little C Church uh, look like Big C Church and as much as you can. Each local church is a distinct family. We discussed this reality that it consists of a congregation. Uh, it, is, it is served by deacons and it's led by pastors slash elders. 
So that's where we're narrowing our focus a little bit as to how does this particular local church glorify God? Well, part of it and what we're going to focus on is this congregation. But I showed this diagram to you, and I just want to point out some things because this sermon is going to relate to the next number of sermons, uh, certainly next week and then uh, a couple weeks after that. But we see the local church is made up of a congregation of which in that congregation you have pastors slash elders and you have deacons. All right, so let's just look at this. Pastors slash elders are part of the congregation. That's what the picture says. They are not deacons. There's two distinct groups. Pastor elders serve for a different purpose than deacons serve. I wanted to talk about this. There's a confusion about pastors and deacons. Uh, What's the relationship between them? And, And so they both serve, but they serve for different purposes, and they have different roles and responsibilities. So that, that just, I just want to point that out because as we look at this picture, it's not like those circles of pastors slash elders and deacons overlap. They don't. They're distinct. There's two offices in the church. Deacons are also part of the congregation. They are not pastors slash elders, and therefore they lead for a different purpose than pastor and elders lead. Certainly deacons are leaders, but it's a, they're leaders in a different way that pastors and elders are. And we'll focus on that next week uh, as, we, as we discuss uh, specifically deacons. So I don't, I'm not going to take the time today. But let's talk about this third group for a minute. This is all of us, right? The congregation. Without the congregation, there are no people for the pastors slash elders to lead. And without uh, the congregation, there, is no pe- there, aren't, or there are no people for the deacons to serve. That's significant. Because you don't have a church of just pastors, uh, pastors, elders, and deacons. You don't have that. So in reality, without the congregation, there is no church. Why is it important for you to be here? When we gather together as a church family, why is it important? Because you're part of the family. You are part of this congregation. And if you're not here and then someone else is not here and someone else is not here, eventually no one's here, our church dissolves. And we've seen this happen through history. Churches just diminish and diminish and diminish. And we're trying to avoid that. That's one of the reasons we did the assessment is to understand how are we, uh, what is our health like as a church? And so that's why we did. We went to the doctor. And, and so we want to make sure that our congregation, people, pastors, elders, and deacons are all healthy. That's why we're doing this. All right. So this is the local church. So as we focus on church leadership, that's the, that's the focus of this particular Grace and Truth discussion uh, today and on Wednesday. Um, as we focus on church leadership and decision-making, there are three questions that we're going to consider today. All right? So well, let's look at the first two real quick. Uh, the first question is this. Who's in charge? Uh, some people are confused about, you know, who's in charge around here? And the second question is similar. Uh, who, has, who has authority? And so I'm going I'm to answer these two questions before I introduce the third question. And so let's go with who's in charge. Uh, you don't have to raise it out. You raise your hand. You don't have to shout. Please don't shout it out. But just be thinking in your mind. Who's in charge? I hope that your uh, ecclesiology is informed by your Christology, which says Jesus is in charge. We've already established this is his church. It's his church. And so as you think about this in Acts 10, 34 and 40 to 43, this is the passage where Peter comes and he's, uh, he, gives the, he brings the gospel to Cornelius and his household. 
This is a huge event in church history. Uh, Pentecost has already taken place. The Holy Spirit has indwelled the disciples. They've been, they speak. Uh, those who have been gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, uh, they hear the gospel. You got 3,000 that get saved. Uh, the church is birthed. Everything's wonderful. Uh, and then Peter, one day, he has this vision. He has this vision on the rooftop, and, and he says, kill and eat. And he says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't call unclean what I have made clean. It happened three times. Peter was scratching his head. People show up at his door and say, basically, God wants you to come. Uh, well, actually, God told him, go with these men, right? They're going to take you to a Gentile's house. Well, that's not, what, that's not what happens in that day and age. But remember, the middle wall of partition has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house he says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God is, has, uh, shows no partiality. Can I just ask you to pause for a minute? Remember your background of faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what was going on in your life. And aren't you thankful that God doesn't show any partiality? Aren't you glad that you didn't have to be at a certain time period in history or in a certain place in the world in order to uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ? He shows no partiality. The gospel is going forth into all the world. And if you've believed it, then, then know that God has done what God has done for you. He's done for, for people all over the globe. All right? He says, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This is like uh, Paul is just pausing in the, or excuse me, Peter is just pausing in his, uh, in his uh, uh, speech to, to Cornelius and his household. He just says, hey, let me just get this up front. Jesus is Lord of all. And he says, that word you know. In other words, he knows that they are familiar with, uh, with who God is. He says, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He's, he's walking Cornelius and his household through the history of Jesus Christ. And we, now he enters into this, we are witnesses. This is Peter giving personal testimony. We are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree. Remember, Jesus Christ isn't just Savior of the world because he was born into the world. He was born into the world to die a death, really, for sinners, of which he was innocent. And he died this death, and Paul, Peter is just uh, getting it out there. Listen, this is the Jesus who died, but verse 40, good news is, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead. But notice this. And he commanded us. This is the idea. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is in charge. Jesus has authority. It says he commanded us to preach to the people. What people? All people. And to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus has all authority. We'll talk about that in a minute. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. This is the, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. You can, you can bow the, not, the knee to Jesus now. You can confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can repent of your sins, and he will make you a new person. 
You will be forgiven, and your life will be, you will be born again. All things will become new. Until you actually come to faith, you cannot anticipate the joy that is found in Christ. So we see that Jesus is also known as the head of the church. This is just a, a quick passage out of uh, Colossians. It says he is, uh, this is talking about Jesus. He's before all things. This is the internality of Jesus, right? And in him all things consist. This is his present work. He consists, uh, he created everything. He's holding everything together. But notice this, and he is the head of the body, the church. This is who we are. Jesus has the authority. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus Christ never gave up his, his authority over the church. We'll talk about his delegated authority in a little bit, but he is to be preeminent here. So although we can say this is our church, let's understand that it's our church only because we're in Christ and it's his church. So three questions, who's in charge? We've answered that, it's Jesus. Uh, who has authority? All right, well, we'll just go ahead and answer that one uh, as well. It's the idea of ultimately Jesus has all authority. I'm going to move quickly through this. We know from the Great Commission text that all authority was given to Jesus. We've hit this quite a bit over the last year or so. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It was a authority that is God the Father's authority that he has given to Jesus Christ. All right? So, so who has authority? Jesus does as head of the church. Jesus is able to delegate authority. And this is where we're going to narrow in a little bit more on into uh, our discussion of understanding church leadership and, and uh, as, as we focus on that. Matthew 16, uh, 15 through 19. Again, I, I know this is a long message, all right? So I, I, I want to, every once in a while, I want to just kind of tap dance and or do something to get your attention because you might get tired of hearing my raspy, strained voice. But this is an amazing passage of Scripture. This is the passage of Scripture where Jesus identifies this idea of the keys, the keys of the kingdom. We don't have time to go into all the details about it, but this is important for us to understand. As we talk about Jesus have, as the head of the church, delegating authority, we're going to see, he, we're going to watch him delegate here. He says to them, speaking to his uh, uh, disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Bar Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let me just pause here for a minute and just say, what is this case of the kingdom? Well, if you understand, if you read through the book of Acts, you read through the, the, uh, the, um, the Gospels, you see that Peter is this central figure. And he is that one that preached on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. He's that one that spoke to the half-Jews, half-Gentile half, uh, community of the Samaritans, I think it was at the time. And then he's also the one that spoke to the, the full Gentiles. He is the one that basically took that leadership that God, that this authority that God had given him to preach the gospel to each of these distinct groups for the first time. And, he is, and Jesus is saying, I am delegating my authority that I have been given. I have been given all authority. Matthew 28, 18. I've been given all authority. And now he's saying, and Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's, he is 
making a very specific delegation of authority to Peter. But ultimately, what we're going to see is that, de- that, that authority has been delegated even further. And we're going to look, look at that. All right? We also see in the Acts 1, 6 through 8, this is a great commission text. Uh, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? Remember, in the previous passage in, in Matthew 16, it was the idea, this is before his death, burial, and resurrection. This is after his death, burial, and resurrection. And they're still asking the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. God has the authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This happened at Pentecost. And you shall be witnesses to me. What's the power for? To be witnesses. So, but what we have to understand is the apostles and the disciples were not the only witnesses that have taken place through history. It says that you are going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. That's great. They can do all that. And to the end of the earth, they can't do that. I mean, Paul certainly reached to the ends of his known earth as much as he could. But we are still seeking to reach the end of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, this is a great commission. We're supposed to be obeying it and doing it. So Jesus delegates authority. And we're going to look at two ways he delegates. One, he delegates to pastors slash elders. Again, it's the same people. That's why I keep throwing them over there together. The same, the same group, pastors and elders. This authority that Jesus has delegated, we can say that Jesus delegated the authority to his apostles, and then they subsequently delegated it to the pastors slash elders through the word of God. All right? So we see this in, in this text. It's First Thessalonians 5 is what we read earlier. Uh, we urge you, brethren, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So we're not going to spend time on this today because we'll focus on pastors and elders in a few weeks. But I want to just establish the fact that we do know that God has delegated authority to people here because they are over you. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, these individuals are over you and they have the authority to admonish you. Have you ever been around someone who said, you're not the boss of me when it comes to uh, spiritual things, right? You don't get in my face about my sin. You, you don't have the right to talk to me. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail, but certainly it's part of what I'm called to do. It's what the other pastors are called to do. If we see sin, we're supposed to because we are over you in the Lord. It's a spiritual leadership. We are called to admonish when admonishment is necessary. But we're also called to encourage and all those things, and we'll talk about that another day. But it says, esteem they very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So, so we know that Jesus delegates authority to pastors and elders. What about deacons? Does Jesus delegate authority to deacons? Well, I'm going to say No. If you remember in the, uh, in the passage in Acts where we, we go to, and we'll go there next week, where it's the establishment of, of deacons and the office of the deacon, he goes to the church and says, search out seven men of good report. Local church congregations have delegated authority from Jesus Christ. Am I diminishing deacons? Not on your life. 
Not on your life. I will seek to glorify, explain how they glorify God next week as we focus on them. But I'm just saying for, for the purposes of today, as we're talking about church leadership and decision making, Jesus delegates authority to pastors and elders, and he, and he uh, delegates authority to local church congregations, and that's you. So we've talked about this. Uh, it's also a, a delegated or a, a, a from the apostles to the to the congregation, right? So if we were to consider these two questions, who's in charge? Jesus. Who has authority? Jesus. But Jesus has delegated authority uh, ultimately down through the apostles, through his word, to these two groups. Here's the question I want to consider. Where do we see local church congregations given authority? All right. Where do we see local church congregations given authority? We're going to enter, we're going to just consider three. This is, I put it in my notes. They're not exhaustive. I could, I could have a, a series on the church, and, and we would go for uh, till I was not able to speak anymore, like, like decades at this point. Because every time we come together, we worship God, but we're taking God's word, and we're seeking to uh, uh, impart it to the congregation so that we would respond, right, and learn and grow. All right? So where do we see the local church? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 28, which is the passage we just read, we had the, uh, the scripture reading today. It was 12 through the end, but I'm just going to say, in these verses, we see authority is given to impact the spiritual walk of others. Do you realize that you have the ability and the authority to enter into someone else's life in spiritual matters? Sounds kind of frightening, does it? Sign, sounds kind of like busybody. Why? But notice in this text, it says, Paul says, I exhort you, brethren. What does he exhort them? Hey, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. And while you're doing all those things, be patient with all. This is the idea. If you're going to warn somebody, it's the idea that you see something in their life that you think they're in danger, and you are you have every right to go to that brother and sister in Christ and say, I need to warn you. Now that's one-on-one. -on -one. But I think this is also the idea of what we do congregationally and corporately. If we see a brother or sister in Christ, we can warn them even in a public fashion. Now I'll say that's more to the next point than this one. But we have this inherent authority to enter into the lives of others. Uh, just going back to remind you what this is saying. Authority is given to impact the spiritual walk of others. It's not authority to be a busybody. You have to be looking out for them through the Word of God, having been prayerful and coming for them for their benefit, not your own. All right? I mean, there's a lot involved here, but I'm just saying, you have this. It's implicit in, in what he's saying. Warn, comfort. You have authority to come alongside someone and comfort the faint-hearted, those that are, that are just beat up with life and just questioning the things of faith. And No, you have, you have an obligation to go and, 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 and uh, uphold the weak, to strengthen them. He says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. This is, again, is a corporate. We ought to be very aware if we see one person or one group of people kind of kind of rendering evil towards another one, we ought to call it out. We shouldn't just leave and just say, oh, whatever. I'm just going to leave. I don't like this church. I'm just going to leave and let them deal with it. It's like, no, call it out in a God-honoring way because you have the authority as a, as a local body of believers. We, we can do this, and we are to pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. This is a corporate context that we are going on here. He says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in you. But notice, do not quench the spirit. I think we can quench individually. 
I think we can quench corporately. Do not despise prophecies, individually or corporately. Test all things. You have, the congregation has been given the authority and the encouragement to prove the things that I am saying or any preacher is saying. Ultimately, who's responsible for the right teaching in this church? Us, because we are the congregation. Yes, I'm, I, I need to be di- vigilant and diligent and all that, so the other pastors, but I'm just saying, you can't neglect your responsibility to make sure that what, what, what is being preached up here is, uh, it has to be right, it has to be true. Hold fast to what is good. All right, so, so another, uh, Matt, this is another, uh, a second area where we see the uh, delegated authority to the congregation. Authority is given to call other church members to repentance. This is what we know as church discipline. Uh, oftentimes when you hear church discipline, people have the, the visual picture of, yeah, we're just going to kick out the trash, right? Get rid of those people who are no good. It's like, no, that is not church discipline. The, the root of discipline is to disciple, to teach. It's the idea of restoring one another. That's why authority is given to call other members to repentance, bring them back. That's what it's all about as you go through this text. And we're probably familiar with it. For a second time, I'm going to go pretty quickly. He says, listen, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If that doesn't work, uh, if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more. Hopefully you're familiar with this. Hopefully you're practicing this. He says that, excuse me, that by word of, uh, uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established or needs to be done the right way. He says, but if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Well, who's the church that is being told? This isn't universal. This isn't big C church. This is little C church. If someone's going to tell it to, I've got to tell it to the body of believers of which that person is a member. And so if he refuses to hear, then tell it to the church. Speak it. But if he refuses to even to hear the church, and that happens, folks. Unrepentant sin of an individual will move this process to the point where he, will be, he or she will be brought before the church. And we're going to talk more about this on another date, but uh, to, so that you can be restored. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Ultimately, if, unre- if lack of repentance is the reality, that person is removed from fellowship. We can't say he's not a Christian, he or she's not a Christian, but we can say you are no longer in fellowship with us God, we're handing you back over. You know, God is going to do to you what God needs to do to you. For what purpose? To restore. And when that person who may be, he may have committed some vile sin, repents, then we welcome him or her back into the fellowship. And then lastly, we see in 1 Corinthians 11, you're very familiar with this, and this is where we're going in the Lord's Supper. We see authority is given to practice the ordinances of the church. This is not, you might think this is kind of strange. Well, he's just tacking this on because this is, uh, this is Lord's Supper Day and, and uh, it's something we do. No, this is something that churches get to participate in. Because if, if it's not done the right way, it's not the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at that. So as we talk about this, to practice the ordinances, we all, first of all, the first ordinance is baptism. Right? So we, we have as, as a church, uh, we know in Matthew 28, it's part of the Great Commission, Baptize in the name of the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is part of the discipling process that we're called to do. But then the Lord's Supper is where our focus is at this point. And, and he says in verses uh, 23 through 30, he says, it must be practiced in a worthy manner. How often have you taken 
uh, the elements, the, the, the bread and the cup, where it would have been viewed by God as not really the Lord's Supper. It's possible. Look what the text says. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, you have to take it in a worthy fashion, right? But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So, so uh, I think I started to emphasize the next point, so let me, let me park here just for a moment. It's this idea of, we talk about this man, woman, child examining themselves. This is the idea of a genuine believer examining their fellowship with God, and their fellowship with their fellow, uh, fellow believers, and I will say even, even all men at, at one level. But he's saying, listen, examine but it has come to my attention that there are people who examine themselves month after month after month and don't participate in the Lord's Supper. That's a problem. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Notice what he says. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is not about woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Uh, can, let me get myself right before I come. No, it's recognizing what you already have in Christ. The Lord's Supper is for believers. The Lord's Supper is for those who know that they already have forgiveness of their sins. And so really, if you're not participating in the Lord's Supper habitually, month after month after month, then what you're basically proclaiming is that somehow you are trapped in some uh, uh, unrepentant sin. So it's the idea of examine yourself would be the idea of examine yourself. If there's sin, repent. You can repent in the now and purpose to do it, you know, afterwards. But eat, drink, recognize what you have in Christ. You've been forgiven. Don't wallow in, in your sin. Don't continue in your un- lack of repentance. If you have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, deal with it. And if you don't think that you're able to deal with it in the sense of, no, I'm not going to do it, then don't take the elements. But if you say, no, Lord, give me the strength to deal with it, that was a prayer of of, of repentance. And, And so eat and drink. Participate in the Lord's Supper. It's what church congregations do. Um, let me keep going here. Uh, for he who eats, drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Notice, this is, this is the congregation uh, focus right here. There are those who are weak, sick, and have died. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's the idea that it must be done worthy, but it also must be practiced in congregational unity. Look what it says here. This is going back to verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. He's reproving the Corinthians. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It may look like the Lord's Supper, may taste like the Lord's Supper, but if you, have, if you lack congregational unity, if, then, then it's not the Lord's Supper that you're participating in. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of, uh, of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. This is certainly true of that time frame. Uh, that's not the way we practice it, but certainly the, the principles are still the same. 
All right? What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Think about that. I always think I highlighted that. Do you despise the church of God, this household of God, and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Folks, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're doing, you're trying to do it once a month for the health of the church. It's a local church ordinance. You don't do it as a biological family behind closed doors. You don't do it as a small Bible study. You, this is a local church. It's just saying this is for the body. It's like baptism is supposed to edify the, the church. The Lord's Supper is supposed to edify the church. It's supposed to remind us of who we are in Christ. And that's why we see that Paul says it must be practiced as a corporate remembrance. So have your little doohickey available here and be careful as you open it. But we're going to walk through this and understand. I, I know I'm pressed for time, and I, I know I'm rushing, so forgive me for that. But this is, this is something that we get to participate in because we are the body of Christ. If you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're asking you not to participate. I do believe that you, are, that you should be baptized before you participate in the Lord's Supper. That's my personal belief. We can talk about it more on another day. Uh, but historically, that's, that's, it's, the ba- it's baptism, giving profession of faith in Christ, and the Lord's Supper is that continual reminder of what our baptism represents. So as we go through this, um, it says uh, uh, the Lord's Supper, it must be practiced as a corporate remembrance. He's, uh, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. So before we do, let me just pause for prayer. And, uh, and before we take the bread. Father, I thank you for, again, the challenge it is to understand this authority that we have. But Father, we pray that as we were called to examine ourselves, we would do that both individually and corporately. And Father, that we would be mindful of, of, those, of what role we play in, in this church congregation. And Lord, are, are we, do we have healthy relationships? Are we, are we seeking to glorify you in, in all areas? And Lord, we just pray that if there are areas in our life that are um, out of line with your will, we pray that we would repent from those things and that we would participate in this celebration of the Lord's Supper. If there's anyone who's, who's trapped in, in unrepentant sin, Lord, we pray that you deliver them. May they, may they repent even now at this moment and say, Lord, I purpose to not do that any longer because I have the Holy Spirit in my life because of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. Lord, I pray that you would move within the hearts and minds of your people to repent and to enjoy the fellowship of believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus says on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is part of our profession of faith. 
that we have a risen Savior. He died for the sins of the world. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again on the third day. He, he, he was seen by many people. He ascended into heaven, and he's returning. And by participating in this, we are able to proclaim his death until he comes back. And we look forward to that day. So have, knowing that last week is the idea that we're still continuing is what the church is, MVBC is called to be. Let me just say MV, MVBC is called to be a unified and faithful congregation, all of us together. Father, may you, glorify, may you be glorified in the heart response of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.